Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, welcome to Secure the Insecure, the podcast where I say it's okay to not be okay. I'm Johnny Steve, and every week I'm joined by one very special guest who's here to tell you about a story, about a subject, about something about them. That you might not know about. Joining me this week, I'm absolutely delighted to invite Lucy Frame after she released her book, Easier Ways to Say I Love You. It is such an amazing, inspirational book, all about just things I've never heard about. Polyamory. Didn't know it existed. I'd heard that, you know, people would be in and out of relationships. But to be in a relationship is one thing. To be in two relationships, completely different. And her book was so eye-opening because she wasn't having an affair. And you're going to hear from her that actually you can love and you can have sex and they don't have to be linked together. And she's got the most amazing journey to how she got to here. And I can't wait for you to hear it. So Lucy, welcome. Hi, Johnny. So let's start by going all the way back to the early days of you as Lucy Fry. Pre-relationships, what was life like for you? At seven, this really unremarkable thing happened in that I was sent um, happily, I should add, I was excited about going to stay with my aunt and uncle in the south of France. And I was going there for 10 days without my mum, without any of my family, but particularly without my mum, who I was very attached to. And I went and I spent the first two, three days really, really excited and happy. And on the third night, I woke up at midnight and I still remember the room and I remember what this place was like. It was this old Provencal kind of farmhouse in the middle of nowhere. And I woke up in this attic room at midnight and I just felt like everyone had died, like my mum had died. And I just couldn't get back to her. It was from that moment on, I just knew that I'd grieved. It was almost a kind of supernatural experience. And I knew that I had to get home. And I did everything that I could for the following, I think it was five or six days, to basically force everyone to fly me home early. 
And all of the adults just didn't get it. They just were like, this is crazy. What's wrong with you? You're going to go home in a week. But I was, I was experiencing what I now know to be acute separation anxiety, which was probably kicked off from some, I know because I'm training as a psychotherapist, but some infant trauma, some brain wiring that was already there, experiences that then can come up at seven because of developments in the brain. And that, that feeling of I have to get home, I have to return to mum, I have to return to safety, I'm not safe panic, fight, flight, continue to happen for much of my my life on and off after that. Because attachment for you is a massive issue. Um, yeah. Attachment theory is something that when I first learned about it at therapy school, you know, I, I was sitting in the lecture hall and I heard my story essentially told about anxious attachment and separation anxiety. And I went outside and I had a panic attack. So something had been kind of unleashed in my body and I just went, that makes sense of everything that I've gone through, the negative stuff that I've gone through. Attachment is really about a lasting bond over time with another person. And very often it's those early attachments that we develop in our lives, particularly as babies and young children, which are usually with mother and father, or in my case with my son, with his two mums, and those relationships and how they develop. And the kind of things that as a baby and a child you deem as normal, normal ways to love... Those become your blueprint, if you like, for how, before therapy, but for how you approach other relationships. So if I've grown up knowing that when I cry, no one's available, I will then go into relationships thinking, yeah, I can't really trust you to ever be there for me. I'm going to stay quite shut down. I'm not going to emotionally open up. If I've learned that when I cry really, 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 really loudly, you're there for me, but you're not there for me if I'm a bit upset or you don't notice, then I'll probably go into relationships with somebody who can get a bit hysterical and really quite demanding because that's the only way I know how to ask for that emotional support. So those are the insecure attachment patterns. But if I grow up knowing that most of the time I'm seen and heard and loved and my caregivers can tolerate their own distress and they can come for me and they might notice if I'm upset and say, you know what, it's okay, I've got this, I've got you, I can handle your upset as a child, then I'm more likely to be securely attached and to go on and to develop healthier relationships. And what were your parents like with that attachment with you growing up? Well, all of our parents are, are sort of um, subjects to their own attachment stuff. Um, and their own attachment stuff isn't really the right word, but their own attachment patterns. Both of my parents were sent to boarding school really young. My mum was seven when she went. And she grew up with older parents. It's hard to tell her story for her. She needs to tell it herself. So this is just my experience. But I would suggest that she's had quite a lot of abandonment in her life and that that showed up in the way she parented me, which was on the one hand, fiercely protective and loyal, and on the other hand, quite unavailable. Another part of your journey is your identity. Uh, the book, you talk about two characters, A and B. Let's start with how that relationship started with A. Yeah, it wasn't very pretty, um, and it certainly doesn't look good for me. It was an affair. It was infidelity. That lasted about two weeks before I then had to come clean because I just couldn't tolerate looking in the mirror. And then when I did come clean to my wife, B, she said, I, I, well, she was obviously very upset and she, she did feel all those feelings of jealousy that you'd understand. And then she said, well, I don't really believe in monogamy either. And so we began a journey into a foray into conscious non-monogamy, or, which then ended up being polyamory, which is more about loving romantic relationships with others. And that's where it went from there. Because you've had relationships with A, which was all about the sex. So you'd be driving up to Leeds, you'd be going wherever just to have that sexual intercourse. What did that mean for you? What was sex for you? I think, um, well, it quickly developed from just sex, you know, so it's kind of ironic to call it just sex in the book because that's what we tried to do. 
and I think part of the the way that I attach is that it's if I sleep with someone over and over again it's unlikely that I'm just not going to have feelings for them but for me at that point it was about a sense of being alive I think I'd felt quite held back from that kind of energy resource for quite a long time and my sexual energy and just my creative energy and I'd felt a bit like I was trying to conform to society in some way and what society's ideas for a woman should be and then suddenly I met this woman who was a bit older and very very confident sexually and she just really did bring me out of myself literally and uh, metaphorically just kind of made me realize that there was more to sex than just marital sex if you like or what a lot of people deem it to be in a marriage, which is things can get a bit humdrum. Like you can take each other for granted. Not everyone does that, but we certainly we certainly did that. And when we opened up our relationship, and when A actually became a part of our relationship, and we <laughs> we became a triad, the three of us, B and A and me, B and I began to really appreciate the other one in an entirely new way. It was extraordinary. So when you're having an affair with A, and B was thinking, oh, where are you? Why are you not answering your phone, etc.? And it was a pure affair. Did you feel guilty to be? Oh, I mean, I felt destroyed by guilt. Yeah, absolutely awful. Like, split down the middle. Like, who am I? I also wasn't able to not answer my phone. I mean, I just lying about anything has always caused me, actually, anxiety and depression. And, and so that's my first thing. If I'm starting to feel off mentally, I think, what am I not being true about? There's something here. So, yeah, it was that's why it only lasted two, two, three weeks as an illicit affair before it, before it became something I had to tell the truth about. The difference was, in telling B, I wasn't saying, we need to split up. And I wasn't saying, I'm going to never see A again. I was saying, this is what's happening. What do you feel? What do I feel? What are we going to do? How did that conversation go with B when you were saying, look, A is here? What did you want to happen from that conversation? I don't think at that stage I had... M- much idea what I wanted to happen. B was pregnant. There was no way that we could ever kick off this conscious non-monogamy on an equal level because she was carrying our baby and that was her main concern at that stage. She wasn't exactly keen to explore her sexuality in those few months. I think I wanted her to know the truth and to choose, therefore, from that position to choose to be with me or to not be with me because I think when we hide so much of what we've done and when people have affairs and they stay with people, they're effectively not allowing their spouse or their partner to decide to be with them knowing lots about them a shared sense of humor a shared intellectual connection bags of history the fact that we lived together and we both paid the mortgage you know all those humdrum things are like sometimes you think about breaking up with someone and actually it's like oh but we've got the so-and-so's coming around for dinner on saturday and we've cancelled them three <laughs> times already we can't break up now sometimes it is really that ridiculous we had been through an awful lot we didn't know how to have a relationship i got married at 28 two years after after coming out, I got civilly partnered. I was just playing what I thought was the right game, really. I think um, B and I grew up together, really. So we we were family. We'd been through so much together. But the thing about the context is that when, in the book, I start off with the affair, and then I go into the backstory between B and I. And I think after the backstory, you're probably a lot more sympathetic to me and the things that I've done. I was always sympathetic to you, because I think the fact that you could be so honest, raw, and just up, front about the complexities you know as a part of the book you talk about um compulsiveness and there was a slight moment where you could have been seen as an abusive partner mm. and to say that out loud and say mm. look i took it too far and actually because uh you send the book something like um b says you're hurting me mm. that yeah. that's 
a massive thing for you to it was admit. Huge. Yeah, it was huge to write that bit. It's, it's, um, I don't want to kind of stop people buying the book because they know about things, but it's not a, it's not a hitting, but it is a pinching incident. It's kind of, kind of like I just couldn't stop slightly hurting her. It's a bit like flicking someone's head. It was very hard to put that bit in, but I felt B and I had gone through it together and we had totally been through that and that had never happened again and I'd apologised and I'd made amends. But the important part of that bit in the book is that I'm saying there's this traumatised part of me that acted out in anger and that's what that that's what happened there and I see that now. Let's take it back a step. So in the morning when I wake up, I want to message my girl, right? And before I go to bed, I message my girl. Mm. When you've got two people, how do you do that? How, how do you know who to update about what? <laughs> you've, just, you've just touched on one of the major issues. And in fact, the, yeah, the biggest issue about being with two people is, I mean, <laughs> how do you even remember who you've told what to? Um, and, and for me... That's been a real problem. Has been how do I maintain this intimacy, this emotional depth with two people? Do I have the time? Do I have the brain power? Do I have the heart power for it? Um, it's very, very difficult. Is the answer, and I think to some extent, I'm not sure if I'm really, really that good at it. It's it's hard not to treat two people quite similarly, but I think it's important to remember that both relationships are entirely different. The things I speak to me about are often to do with our son, or often to do with, you know, what we share in all of that together and and we enjoy different things the things i talk to a about it's a different it's a younger relationship it's a different relationship with a different human so i don't tend to update them both on everything that's going on with me would you ever want to be in a situation where a becomes your wife and b becomes your girlfriend or that a and b are both your wives um interesting question i i think actually if i was entirely true to what i believe in now I would have no wife. I was got, that was my next thing is, do you know how to be alone? Are you looking at this as, I've always got my bases covered. So if I have a fight with B, I've got A. If I have oh, a fight no, with A, no. I've got B. It doesn't work like that because, I mean, yes, it's, it's lonely if, you're complete, if you have one partner and then you have a fight with them. But actually the pain of having a fight with a human being is the pain of having a fight with that human being. Just because I've got a dad doesn't mean it doesn't hurt when I have a fight with my mum. So that's one thing I've learned, but I can understand why you'd ask that question. When I say I don't really want to have a wife, I mean, I no longer believe in marriage. Um, I don't really believe that we can promise together forever. It's not something that I ever aspire to. I think for me, conscious relationship building, which is what I'd now call what I do, is about what do you want? What do I want? How can we make this work? And it's building. It's the ING at the end that matters. So in a way, marriage assumes that you've built it and then you just go off and live it. That's not how relationships work for me. So why would you not get a divorce and then just have them as your two partners? What, why, why stay in this? Because effectively you're looking at marriage as a contract. Yeah. So why not void the contract and carry on living as you were? Well, <laughs> I suggested it to B once when she said, sure, babe, if you want to pay the 250 quid or whatever, <laughs> you can do that. And that, that's probably her way of defending against maybe feeling a bit hurt. Um, but the, the real answer is uh, my son, I'm on his birth certificate because I was a civil partner. That automatically, because B got pregnant via artificial insemination, the other woman, i.e. me, on the birth certificate, on the civil partnership certificate, then becomes automatically the parent. If I had have been just her girlfriend, that wouldn't have been the case and I would have had to gone through much more formal means back in 2017 when my son was born to become his other parent. 
So that was the main reason to stay civilly partnered up to that point. Now, don't know, we just haven't talked about it recently. I, I suppose that might be something that happens. I'd need to talk to her very gently about it and see how she feels about it. And does A believe in marriage? A's been married twice, once to a man and once to a woman. So um, I think A's done there. <laughs> I think she's had enough of marriage. Society in the next 20 years we can't predict, but obviously in the past five years we've been very much more open to the LGBTQ plus community, to the BAME community. We don't know what will happen, but how do you want that conversation about mummy's relationship to go when the time is right? And when is the time right, is it? Because he's going to start noticing things really within the next two or three years. And yeah. you know how traumatised you were from your childhood. So yeah. How do you stop that being, he's going to be bullied or... Hmm. It's a very different concept to just being lesbian parents, but it's being in this other relationship yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, It's an interesting one. And it's certainly the area that I've been most heavily judged for in coming out as polyamorous. It's, that's all okay if you're just grown-ups getting on with this slightly weird thing. If you have a kid, well, no, now, now it's not allowed. Now you're going to screw up your kid. My experience, and certainly this is what most of the research shows, that actually children are more destroyed by insecure attachment um, and then further traumas then hit them much harder if they're insecurely attached, human beings. So I would say we have focused on making him as secure as possible and everything else we'll deal with as and when it comes, age appropriately. So if B goes on a date or goes out to see some new love interest, mummy's gone on a sleepover. You know, that's perfectly acceptable. As long as she's a parent who comes back all the time, he'll he'll be all right with that. He already knows A as well. He's known her since he was um, since he was born, and they have a really cute relationship. But well, what is A to R, your son? I always like to say she's but she's like a godmother, really. She's like that kind of fun auntie godmother figure. But to an extent, she is also a stepmother, but not. Yeah, I mean, this is semantics, though. Really, she is. I would say she doesn't have parental responsibility and I don't over her daughter. But obviously, she's someone I love. I want her to love my kid. But it doesn't mean we have to kind of put a label on it. She, As long as she's someone who is there for him when he needs her. And then, yeah, people do split up. There's always a possibility of that. That happens in all relationships. So he has his core two people, B and me. We are the ones who are not going anywhere. And then obviously we just need to be really cautious about who else we bring in. Before we talk about the book, I want to know about your family. Christmas, lunch, birthdays, anniversaries. How how's it been with your family in the wider world and your friends accepting this? Because it's not like every other couple is doing what you're doing. It's quite special what you're doing. Yeah, a close friend of mine was involved. Um, she was involved with a um, married male-female couple. And she said they got to the point, they were six years together. They got to the point, the three of them, where they went for Christmas lunch at her parents. And... Um, yeah, I can't really see that happening with my family. Let's put it that way. How does it make you feel? Sad. But also, it's taken me an awful long time to get my head around it, so I do understand this. They're taking a long time. But I think, on the whole, my experience is people find it easier to deal with an acrimonious divorce than they do with a shift in what, what that kind of love is and an opening up of the relationship to include more partners. What's the worst question you've been asked about your situation? What do you think people don't understand still? I think the hardest thing... Well, there's two things. One, the question that I'm asked a lot, which will get to me, is don't don't you think you're screwing up your son? We, we've kind of addressed that a bit. The one that really 
mm-hmm. will just leave me kind of defending, going off on a defensive rant, which means there's something there for me, is the one about, you know, how have your family taken the book? At dot, 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 implication, as I read it, how have you written about your mum so honestly? And how do you sleep at night? I mean, this is all my own projection, but how do you sleep at night having hurt someone? Because she is hurt by it. And I find that really hard because it taps into all of my stuff around, I shouldn't tell my story, I shouldn't tell the family story, we should keep this secret, these are my problems. And so in a way, that's what made me a writer. It's like I want to communicate with the world, but also my family just think that things should be a lot more secret. I mean, the hardest thing that I've had to receive, the kind of comment that I've had to receive, has been from two people very close to me, who said, I gather from reading your book that we have a very different idea of what should be public and what should be kept private. Now that for me is just like trigger central. You know, you should be quiet. You shouldn't talk about your feelings this much. You are too much. It's not their fault. They said one thing. I made it into something else. And I I know vaguely the reasons for that. But it is interesting that I can be more open on the page than actually sitting around a dinner table. And I'm a pretty open person now. And weirdly, I'm still really private. And it's quite hard because my book's quite explicit actually as well. So... And that's a whole, there's a whole different reasons for that. But that's been really hard to put out into the world and to look people in the eye when I know they've read about me in bed with someone. It's kind of, especially your family, you know, but I'm really private actually about my sex life when it comes to talking about it. I'm, I'm quite open about talking about sex, but I'm, I'm not someone who shares everything. But in the book, it felt like it was necessary for the story. But was it necessary to use certain words? Because, for example, the C word is used a lot in the book. Why not? I mean, we need to reclaim that as women. I mean, that that's a feminist act on my part. Okay. So you've decided to write easier ways to say I love you. Why now? I wrote it to survive what I was going through. I wrote it because I was processing a lot of my childhood after, you know, in, during the 10 years that I've been in therapy and the five years I've been training as a therapist. A lot of things have become clear to me and I understood. I mean, the therapeutic process or the healing process, let's not align it just to psychotherapy, The healing process is about creating a narrative that makes sense for oneself so that we can understand who we are. It might not make sense to your mum, to your dad. They've got their own healing to do and they've got their own narrative. So this is a reconfiguration of my story and this book was my way of doing it because I'm a writer. An artist would do it through paintings. You know, it's, it's it's how I sort of figured out, oh, that bit goes with that bit and that's why I did that. And I think you've hit the nail on the head because you're an author. Because a form of therapy that is great is writing a letter to yourself or just mm. writing and documenting. And you kind of get into a position of kind of fabricating something sometimes. But you know it's not going to be published. You know it's not going to be seen by anyone. But it's there for you to get your words out. But as an author, you're looking to get that book published. Was there ever a time that you went, I've written it all down and I don't want it to be published because it is so raw, it is so honest... And I can see for myself what I've done. Mm. But actually, firstly, it can actually hold me back in my career because people can find out this different version of myself. Mm. And secondly, you're not putting out there your writing. You're putting out your feelings. So the Lucy Fry, the author, and the Lucy Fry are too similar for this book. Mm. They're not, though. That's the thing. The, the craft of a book like that is so that the reader, the reader thinks they really know that person. The reality is they don't. For oh, a start, great, thanks. For a start, it finished in May 2019, so I'm already different. And secondly, there's loads of me that's been left out. You know, I'm 
I'm far more humorous and silly in real life, quote unquote, than on the page. All my darkness comes out in my writing. When I looked for agents for this book, so I was looking for a new agent, and it got turned down because everybody said it, they, they loved the writing and they thought it was, you know, really gripping, but they didn't know where it would fit on the shelves. So it wasn't marketable, so they couldn't think of taking it on and trying to sell it to a publishing house. Four or five agents turned it down for that same reason, and I felt relieved. I felt gutted, and then I felt relieved. Oh, at least, oh well, the plus side is I don't have to share the story with anyone. And then I sent it on a whim to a small publisher called Myriad Editions, who are renowned for publishing slightly left-field stuff or more challenging things that maybe other publishing houses don't do for various reasons. And they came back a couple of months later, by which time I'd completely forgotten about it and moved on, forgotten about sending them the email. Um, and they said they wanted to publish it. So I did have that period of time where I was relieved that it wasn't going to go out into the world. And then when somebody said they wanted to publish it, I thought, no, it, this is why I'm here in the, on the earth. And actually, I do need to go for this. And do you think that's what your job is in the world? Your job was to actually speak out and be honest say, look, I am in a polyamorous relationship. I see my kind of purpose um, these days as bigger than that. It's kind of like help give people permission to feel their full range of feelings and to be their fullest self. Why permission? I don't think in our culture we feel, on the whole, well, it's what I hear in my therapy room as well, it's like, on the whole, people don't feel they're allowed to have certain emotions, or they certainly judge themselves hugely for for feeling things like desire for another person. Maybe they have an affair, they hate themselves for it instead of processing it. They feel like they shouldn't blame their parents for things that happened. Of course, it's not about blame, but it is about actually acknowledging what we've all been through as wounded children. You know, so really I see my, my role as a writer and as a therapist as helping people come to terms with who they are, and that's what I want to do with my, my writing work as well. By sharing my story so honestly, at least I can kind of model that shameless approach. <laughs> Having said that, a lot of shame came up for me on the publication of this book, so then I had to deal with that again. <laughs> so that actually wasn't awful. What about relationships? What do relationships mean to you now? Well, love. I, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't live without love. I met someone the other day who identified as an asexual and aromantic person. So she doesn't enjoy having sex with other people. But she also doesn't engage in any romantic relationships with other people. And that is completely her prerogative. And she's doing a lot for the asexual community. But to me, to live that way is abhorrent. Particularly the aromantic bit would just be... Because my love for my son is romantic. My love for some of my friends is romantic. You know, there's, it's, it's not erotic, but it's kind of like... I want that deep and intense love for human beings. That's that's my biggest purpose in in being here as a human. I want to ask you a question, and it might be completely inappropriate, it might be completely wrong. When you're in a relationship, and for listeners out there, the normal thing would be man and woman, boy and girl, and you're in a relationship, you know that that girl could talk to another boy, that boy could talk to another girl, and it's completely platonic because they know you're not going to stray, you know there's a deep love there. But when they know for you, who is polyamorous, that you are having other relationships and you are going out to date still, are there friends of yours that go, oh, hold on a minute, is she actually trying to chirp me? Or is she trying to just have sex with me? Then actually just being a friend. Well, I think if I wanted to have sex with someone, they'd know about it. <laughs> oh! Read the book, you'll find out um, all the deep things. You'll find out what Lucy likes and doesn't like the, in the bedroom. The, the funny thing is, actually, I'm quite shy. Um, and I've never come on to anyone uh, before they've come on to me. 
in my life. Player. Um, would you believe it? I haven't. I've never. I've. I've always been hit on rather than done the hitting on. So you wouldn't really believe that because I'm. I'm quite relaxed about things now. But okay. So your question was really interesting because you implied that when you're in a committed relationship, you're safe from anyone straying, which is complete and utter horseshit. <laughs> um, 75% of people, some research shows, admit to being unfaithful in monogamous pairings. We're never safe, quote-unquote, from, from falling for other people. What you're asking is, is, it reminds me of when I came out as gay. I was struggling with it a lot, and I came out, and some female friends said, yeah, yeah, that, that's great, babe, as long as you don't want to get into bed with me. Also, that's the last thing on my mind. I'm coming to terms with my own homosexuality. This is a big deal. I've got a lot of internalised shame and I don't need you saying that kind of thing. Um, now I'd have a much more jokey response to it. I don't think... I've never had friends say anything like that. Maybe it is going through their head. How much fun? I can really play with that now. Well, Ashley Madison, who is the uh, cheating website, had the best figures ever. Like 200,000 people in the past year have downloaded the uh, app and are now on the service. A cheating website? Yeah, so you can have affairs and on the... Uh, yeah. No, that's the opposite of, of the way that I'm living now. The whole thing about ethical non-monogamy is nobody gets cheated on. Cheating is one of the most destructive, soul-destroying things I've ever done. I've had it done to me, and it is horrendous. The, the damage is huge, especially if you have attachment trauma. So coming out the other side, would you now say you've found happiness? No, I think happiness is a fleeting state that comes and goes, just like every other feeling. I'm definitely... I find life much more colourful, much more exciting... My mind has been opened, my heart has been opened, other parts of my body have been opened. You know, it's kind of like everything is just, there's more possibilities, different ways we can go. I might well choose monogamy, but I'll choose it. I won't fall into it any more than I'll fall into a heterosexual relationship. I will choose these things now. So on an existential level, my choices are widened and that kind of really excites me to be able to see see things in a new way and to see the complexities and the depth in in life and love and relationships is really just lights me up and final question for you lucy easier ways to say i love you the title of your book what are the easier ways to say i love you <laughs> the title of my book comes out of a passage in the book um where it's like there are easier ways to say i love you than to write a book than to than to come out as having about having an affair and try and figure it out with you there are easier ways to say I love you than to be a non-biological mum to a child than to go through all your trauma in therapy and, you know, un reconfigure that narrative. But this is how I do it. So this, the title is actually easier ways to say I love you. There are those, but my book is the way that I say I love you. Lucy Fry, you've been amazing. love doing this podcast so much it's a year of doing this podcast and a year of meeting such inspirational brave honest strong people who come to tell me their story and to tell you about something that you might never have experienced and you might have had judgments before you might have seen a stigma before to a way that someone lives their life the choice they go through but until you know their background until you know the complexities until you know the attachment issues until you know why they do the things they do. You don't truly get to know them. And that was an example in this episode of Lucy telling you why she does the things she does. Because you might think, oh, okay, I don't know how I feel about that, especially her son R, having a mum, then having another mum, 
and then having a girlfriend of one of the mums and one mum dating still. But you can now see why. And you can now see how important it is for Lucy, for A, for B, to live that way. And why should you judge that? Why should you judge the way someone lives? We keep saying hashtag be kind. Well, are you being kind? Are you going to go and share this episode with someone and say, look, look how this episode has changed the way that you think about relationships? Because I think you should. And I also think you should share it on social media. Not just, you know, for Lucy and her benefit, but also for me to get my podcast bigger hits. Because obviously that's also important. Um, Look, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I can't thank you enough for being part of this Secure the Insecure journey. I've been Johnny Seifert. Please do share on social media. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.